0: Hey Church of the Valley, welcome back to our Leading While Stuck in the Home series as we're going through the book of Titus. We have walked through this book with the intention to help equip us as a community while sheltering in place as God's people to lead and follow well while being witnesses and signposts that point to Jesus as the Messiah. Today we're going to begin with the bad news of this passage, but it is the bad news that accentuates how beautiful and powerful the good news really is. Paul spent what we know of in the first chapter of his letter describing the character and conduct of the leaders and overseers, but then in chapter two, Paul addressed the character and conduct of the body of Christ, the church members, the people of God, not just the leaders, but the entire church. This chapter seems to emphasize the character and conduct of our witness that points to the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our witness, which we have talked about a lot in this series, is what people often hear even before we open our mouths. They hear of our reputation, they attempt to see if our lifestyle matches up with what is said about us, and if it doesn't, it becomes a really great excuse for people to not hear the message that you and I are attempting to proclaim about the gospel in Jesus Christ. But if your witness is without blame, then people have to come up with another dishonest excuse, or maybe, just maybe, they'll listen to your message. So as we spend some time in this passage today, I'd like you to personally think about yourself. Don't think about how, man, so-and-so needs to hear this sermon. You're welcome to send it to them and tell them about this message, but really the goal is that we would hear this for ourselves and go, hey, how does this apply to me? I'd like to... I'd like each of us to take a personal inventory of our own witness and how we live and how we show off our Savior to other people and ask the Lord to convict us where we may just fall short of the perfect standard of Jesus Christ. When I was 20 years old, I became a Christian and I was at a church that emphasized justification, or as some of us call it, being saved. Every sermon that I heard was really about how we could be a better person once we were saved. And even though I believe that my heart became sympathetic to Jesus, I'm not really sure that my following of him as Savior and Lord actually took place yet. I got excited about Jesus. I got excited about the church community, and I started to talk a lot about him, and I could communicate somewhat well even back when I was age 20, and so people started to make much of me as I made much of Jesus. And over the next few years, I got married, we moved to the Central Valley, and I became less and less connected to God's church. Obedience as a Christian didn't seem to be stressed as much as trying to be a better person seemed to be the theme of every sermon that I heard. And submission to Jesus also seemed to take a back seat because every sermon I heard sounded more like Jesus was my homeboy or my BFF, that means best friend forever rather than the Alpha, the Omega, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. So after moving back from the Central Valley and connecting with the church in the Sunnyvale area, I experienced my oldest daughter, who was three and a half at the time, have a seizure in front of me, and it rocked my perception of God. It it changed the way that I saw that he was willing to allow people to go through hard circumstances because it would create a dependence and a reliance upon him. Then fast forward about eight months, and my father passed away without Christ suddenly. And I had my world rocked because someone that I personally had shared Christ with, who had denied him and said I didn't want anything to do with him, and had rejected the invitation, now had passed on from this life, and I had to deal with the stark reality of heaven and hell, and if they were truly real or not. And I started to realize that God gives us what our heart desires, It was in that instance where I began to be very angry with God for not saving my dad. After a bit of a tantrum, I then truly repented. I truly experienced God in that moment, not because of passive acknowledgement, but true faith-driven repentance. My Christianity at that point became more about submission and obedience than fear of hell and Jesus just being a cool Facebook friend. So the day I first believed was back in 2001, June 13th, but the day I first repented was June 1st, 2010, and many people within the church of the living God are stuck between these two dates. Many claim to believe and trust Jesus Christ as their Lord, but they are yet to submit to him, his will, his word through grace-driven obedience out of the motivation of love. So I begin with that story because every time we open the word, every time we want to teach you the truth of God, we are focusing on obedience and repentance because I seem to lack that when I first believed because I was taught a message that didn't really seem to care about our transformation. And now as I look back on it, it sounded more like how to get people to join a religious club. As we begin chapter three. I want to point out a theme that we see in the book of Titus, especially in chapters 2 and 3. And so we're going to unpack this throughout the entire sermon. We see God's people being subject, submitting to an authority, doing good works. So being subject and doing good works, which are an act of obedience. And we also see Jesus being our Savior and God. So I have one point that we're going to unpack over the next few moments. Here's what it is. Submission to God is through obedience to God in Jesus, our God. So we're going to start in verse 1, Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Here's what it says. Remind the people, Titus, to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. He says, Remind the people. This isn't the first time those in Crete that Titus had been pastoring had heard about obeying governing authorities. But as Paul says this, he comes from his apostolic authority to say that it is right for us to obey those that have been given responsibility over us through the government. And some of you, if you're anything like me, you go, But, but, but. Yeah, I know. I do too. We think, But what if they're evil? What if they're incompetent? What if they don't know all the facts? What if? Well, what if God spoke about this in his word? What if God knew you before you were conceived in your mother's womb? What if God knows you better than you know yourself? Did you ever think about that? Paul says it this way to the church in Rome. Here's what he says in Romans 13 verse 1. Let everyone be subject. To the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now I know that I've read this to say simply this: do what the government says because God put them there. And that may be true, but I think the emphasis of Him putting there, putting them there may not be what establish really means. Establish has more to do with God's allowance, an allowance of a period of time of rule. God allowing for rulers and authorities to be in place to teach, to create opportunities for people to experience the opportunity for repentance and grace. Not because the authority is good, but oftentimes because they're not. And his allowance of opportunities to produce fruit in people is one of the most amazing graces that God gifts to this world. We often want to be more comfortable. We want to be less put out But refining doesn't happen that way. We say this a lot, but God doesn't sanctify with pillows. So you may say, but what about when the governing authorities' laws or requests go against God's commands and decrees? From Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego in the Old Testament to the apostles in the New Testament in the book of Acts, this question gets asked, and yet we receive an answer in Acts chapter 5. Starting in verse 27, it says, The apostles were brought in and made to... be. To appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. So we've heard this, we may even think this when we hear about the governing authorities starting to seem to want us to do things that's different than what Scripture says. But even given this answer, I think we take a lot of liberty when it comes to what we think is actually said by God and from God. Often we, as we read Scripture, interpret Scripture to benefit us even more than it should display God's glory. And we justify what we think something means if it at all acknowledges God. Now listen, I want to be real. I'm going to be really real in the sermon. Just buckle up but I hate politics. Like, I hate them. I really don't like politicians. And I really can't stand it when pastors use pulpits or music stands to justify and proclaim their political views. So know that. Know how much I detest that as I'm about to say what I'm about to say. I miss social interactions. I miss hugs. I miss sitting across the table from a friend at Pete's but I love the gospel more. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, that a, that a sinner like me can be made right, can be made righteous by God gifting his son's perfect record so someone imperfect like me can be right with God. That gospel, I love that gospel. And if by social distancing and abiding by laws that the government has put into place keeps people alive so that more people can be redeemed by Jesus Christ in this life? Then by all means, call me whatever you want, but I'm going to trust governing authorities that God has established. The argument then becomes, well, what about our civil liberties or the right that people have to worship God publicly? Like we said in the welcome video, we're not doing uh, worship. We're not putting worship leaders on the platform behind me. We're not having a bunch of people in the church building all together. Why? Because we wanna be safe. We wanna be safe until we know that there's an opportunity to to not have to shelter in place. But if by coming together we put people in our congregation that we love and we wanna shepherd and we wanna care for in a higher risk of interaction and infection and possible death, I want you to know that I love you enough to preach to a camera, to worship from my couch, and to do, Zoom, to do Zoom calls until I'm old and gray because I love the gospel more than I love my rights. So when you decide to break laws or rules of governing authorities, I'd encourage you to look at the motive behind it. Are you justifying yourself because of your own personal wants and pleasure or because the law goes against the truth found in God's word? Paul tells Titus to remind his people to be subject to governing authorities. In the first century in Crete, and in the 21st century in Silicon Valley, we have a similar problem. Here's what it is. We simply don't want rules to apply to us. Can we just be real about this? This has been the fundamental problem since Adam and Eve in the garden. I'm not much of a rule follower. That's normally not my jam. And I have dealt with consequences of that my entire life of not being a rule follower. Now, my wife, Erin, Riley, oh, she is. If there is a rule, she's going to follow it to a T. But that doesn't justify her any more than doing things wrong doesn't exclude me from the invitation of grace. Grace. So when Jesus became my Lord, I was justified. I was given a new heart with a new spirit to walk in the way that the Lord Jesus would have me live, communicated through his scripture, practiced through the Holy Spirit so that I too would become more like Jesus. So being subject to the government doesn't make me a better person. It may just expose more of who my master is, not a Congress, but Christ. We are submitted to obey and display Jesus Christ. That's why we're submitted. We're submitted to obey and display Jesus Christ. But this idea of obedience, the word obedience, it seems like a terrible word, doesn't it? Who wants to obey? Don't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me now, Malcolm in the Middle theme song. Eat my shorts, man, Bart Simpson. I do what I want. But see, that's the problem. We want to rebel because we think we're more important than other people. I know I do. I drive a truck. That's the definition of thinking you're bigger, better, and more entitled to things. You put me into traffic, and if I can get away with it, and and I can get away from the traffic by driving over a median, I'm doing it while sticking my nose up at Priuses and Teslas all day. But being obedient isn't a have to. It's a get to. And the benefit is that we show our love back to the one who first loved us by obeying what he says because he knows us best and wants us to be more like him. So be subject to authorities. Be obedient. Be ready to do what is good. Scripture constantly speaks of doing good. And I get that many people believe that if you do more good than bad, that you go to heaven. That's what a lot of people's theologies are. Some of you watching this right now might be thinking, well, I've done these good acts, and maybe they make up for my bad acts. But listen, good people, with quotes, good people do not go to heaven, forgiven people do. So I get the misinterpretation, but the good you do is not to earn anything. It is to exhibit who your master is. In Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, we've studied this passage many times, he says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do good works, which God in, prepared in advance for us to do. Those good works are to do what he says, you want to do good works? Don't look to your humanitarian acts as your interpretation of what God means when he says good works. Look to his word and obey it. Obey him. That's the good work that he speaks of. The apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved in his first letter to the church, other than the gospel, he says, 1 John 5, verse 3 says, in fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. So there's this theme. I want you to see it. We've talked about it. There is being subject, submission. At first in chapter two, in verse five, it says husbands, that wives should be submissive to their husbands. Then in verse nine of chapter two, it says slaves should be subject to their masters. They should submit. And then here in chapter three, verse one, it says that all of us should be submitted. We should subject ourselves to the authorities, the governing authorities rule over us. Then the second theme is good works. It's obedience, a pattern of them in chapter 2, verse 7. As God's special people, we should be zealous for good works in chapter 2, verse 14. And we should, again in verse 1, be ready to do good works, chapter 3, verse 1. And then the last theme, Jesus is God and Savior, chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, verse 13 chapter three, verse six, and we see this consistently in the text. So verse two of Titus three, he goes on as Paul is speaking to Titus and he says, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always to be gentle towards everyone. Okay. Now, as he continues with this list, I know that I fall short, but he gives us what we can do. If the spirit of the Lord is in fact inside of us, if he has been deposited in our lives, if we look at these words as a checklist of what we must do, we'll attempt them in our own strength and we'll either give up because we can't do them in our own strength or we'll puff up because we think that we are justifying ourselves by doing them. Now, I want you to hear this. I, I, don't, I, I can clap. I don't know how else to get your attention. I can jump. I don't know. But I need your attention. The point of scripture, when it tells you what to do, is not to justify you once you do it. When you read what Paul or anyone in the text tells you to do, you do not read it, so then you can think that you're justified because you did anything. It is for this reason. The reason Paul tells Titus these things, it is to remind you of what God's people do and what you are able to do Because the Spirit of God resides in you, and you've already been forgiven. See, obedience, it's not a trying harder kind of thing. It's a response in love to your master that is possible because God's intervention, because God has intervened. Verse 3, at one time, Paul says to Titus, we too were foolish, disobedient. We were deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. And instead of walking through each one of those, because I know all of us have had each of those different characteristics in us before Christ, and unfortunately, some of us bring those characteristics with us even into our relationship with the Lord. I'm not going to walk through each characteristic, but I'm going to simply say this, Paul's making known that before Christ, we are tore up. And this is the bad news. It is also a reminder of who we once were, who we used to be, the things that we used to do, and we used to be identified by. But like I said before, the bad news accentuates how good the good news is. Verse four of Titus three, he says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, amen. I cannot tell you of a more important response to who we once were than who God is and what he has done. When the kindness of God, when God in his kindness, in his benevolence, in the usefulness of God appeared in Jesus Christ, our savior and Lord, he saved us. And some of you may not feel like you were saved from anything and in some ways you haven't been yet because salvation means from an eternity without God. But you also were saved to a relationship with God that can never be broken or even interrupted because Christ is our bond and the Holy Spirit is the gift that is deposited to remind us of our future inheritance. Not because of our righteous acts or works, but because of Jesus's righteousness. Not because we are good, but because he is good. Not because we did enough, but because he is enough. The gospel has always been about Jesus and his work and not ours. So the next time you read scripture and think, man, I'm just blowing it. Stop thinking that Jesus loves you less. If you did nothing to earn salvation, but all you did was believe, then why does anything but not believing exclude you? I hear all the time that people don't believe anymore, thus thinking that they have lost their salvation. And there's a massive amount of scripture that points out that this isn't true, but I'm just going to give you one verse as the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, writes in his, sec- in his first letter to the church. He says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us but their going showed that none of them belong to us. But if you have saving faith in Jesus Christ, you have a persevering faith in Jesus Christ. You can't earn that or work really hard to establish it. It is a gift from God that is never, ever taken from you. So you can be secure in God because he made you that way. That's why people who think They'll just believe in God. Eventually, if he proves himself to them, just don't get it. God doesn't gradually save you. He saves you in an instant that lasts for an eternity. That doesn't mean you know everything once you become saved, but you will progress in your understanding and obedience in this life, which is our sanctification process. And I need to remember this when I get frustrated with people, because guess what? I'm frustrated with other people because they sin differently than I do, and they're in a different place in their spiritual journey than I am, and I know I frustrate others because of the same reasons. See, justification is in an instant, and the sanctification process lasts a lifetime second part of verse five of chapter three, Paul says to Titus, he being Jesus saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He saved us through the washing of rebirth. In John chapter three, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, and he says this in chapter three, verse three. He says, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Rebirth is about you becoming a new creation in Christ. You are not who you once were. You were born not just physically, but now you've been reborn spiritually, a new person with a new heart that wants new things. But washing in scripture, it often refers to baptism, not because baptism secures anything for us. We are saved by grace Not by works, but baptism is the symbol of our identifying with Jesus Christ and the salvation that he has secured on our behalf. You you once may have wanted glory for yourself, but if you've been truly reborn, you want glory to be redirected to Jesus Christ. After this renewal that comes from the Holy Spirit, it is a renovation of the heart, a change for the better of your life and for your eternity. Verse 6, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Our justification, our ability for sanctification, our rebirth, our renewal of spirit, the Holy Spirit, our obedience, all of it is because of Jesus Christ. There is no other name above heaven or under the earth that provides all that we need other than Jesus Christ. Verse seven, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heir, heirs having the hope of eternal life. You were justified if you are a Christian. You were made right. You were found not guilty. Why? Because of Jesus's grace. The gift that we did not deserve, who is Jesus who made us heirs? An heir is one who is to receive inheritance. All because of what Jesus did chose to do. And Jesus reminds us, he gifts us and is our eternal life, one that is not but a mist, but is forever and ever. Amen. Verse eight, this is a trustworthy saying, Paul says to Titus. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good to obeying what the Lord says. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Paul continues to tell Titus that what he has been saying is true. Based on his apostolic authority, he wants Titus to stress what Paul has written him about, doing what is good because our good works may not secure our salvation, but they do show off our Savior. We are saved by Christ, not by what we do. And our good works do not secure our salvation. Jesus has already done that. But when we obey him, we show off who he is. And he says, and doing what is good. Being obedient to Jesus Christ as your savior and master is the most important action any of us can do to point glory to Jesus Christ. Obey him. Obey him in the little. Obey him in the big. Point people to Jesus through your words and through your life. When I began this journey of being the lead pastor at Church of the Valley, I did it with the intention of helping people grow into the likeness of Jesus. And I believe wholeheartedly between God's word and my own experience that what happens through, that that when we obey, we grow. That that happens through obedience to the Lord, being a doer of the word rather than a passive observer. That we grow spiritually, that our Christ-likeness takes place as we do what. He says, so how are you going to obey today? You just spent the past many moments walking through a short text with me. How will you take what we studied today and put it into practice? Because if all you do is read it, and even if you like it, and even if you share it, but you do nothing with it as far as obeying it, it really did not take effect. What is God telling you to do differently based on what we studied today? I would encourage you to think about it and to tell someone Tell somebody in your oikos, in your sphere of influence, in your family, in your home, tell someone and ask them to hold you accountable to put into practice what you've learned. Because we do better when we know someone's watching out for us. Just a moment, I'm gonna pray to end the sermon and I'm gonna pray for our offering. And we do offering with the expectation that those people who claim that COV is their community, it's the place they're growing, that they're a part of our church community, even though we're meeting separately and in our own homes rather than together, it's a place where people can give back to the work of God through the ministry of Church of the Valley. And so I'd encourage you to do that. The, the link should be on the screen. You can go to covalley.com forward slash giving, I believe. You can mail a check. We check the mail every few days, and we'll take your offering, and we'll deposit it. But ultimately, your giving of yourself, your giving of your offering is a sacrifice. And it was said once about Cyrus, the founder of the Persian Empire, that he had once captured a prince and the prince's family. When they came before Cyrus, the monarch asked the prisoner, what will you give me if I release you? Half of my wealth, the prince said. Well, what if I release your children, Cyrus asked everything I possess. What if I release your wife? Your majesty, I will give you myself. Cyrus was so moved by his devotion that he freed all of them. And as they returned home, the prince was talking to his wife and he just said to his wife in a passing comment, wasn't Cyrus a handsome man? With a look of deep love for her husband, she said to him, I didn't notice. I could only keep my eyes on you the one who is willing to give himself for me. Lord, I pray for us as a community. And I know it's weird to pray over a video and I know this was pre-recorded and I know that's strange for people, but God, I just pray that your word would take root in the people that have heard it today. I pray that we would sacrifice, not because we, we need to give a little to make ourselves feel good, because it's not about what we do, it's about what you've done, but our response is to obey you, to be a cheerful giver, and to give of our time and our treasure and our talents, not just one of them, but all of them, for the glory of your name. So God, would you use this offering, whatever it is, and would you use it to make more disciples of all nations and generations? Would Jesus be lifted high, and would your people continue to put into practice, even from afar, even disconnected and and sheltered in place, would we put into practice your word for the glory of your name? We pray this in Jesus' powerful name, amen.